All right, so we've been in Acts. We've been in Acts. And so go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to try to cover uh, verses 12 through 41. <clears throat> All right. We'll see what we can do. So for those who haven't been here or are unfamiliar with uh, Acts, uh, the book of Acts is a, uh, a, a book that's a record, a historical record of what God was doing in the early church among his apostles. The, the book is literally called the Acts of the Apostles. And so there's a group of men um, and then uh, uh, many more disciples beyond that who were being used by God uh, to establish his church in Jerusalem. And then eventually, as we progress through the book, what we're going to see is that the church begins to extend and go beyond Jerusalem into other Gentile regions. And even we get to see it creeping into the uttermost parts of the world. Okay, And, uh, and, and history supports this. Uh, there are historical records that say that, um, that, that uh, the Apostle Thomas uh, spent a large portion of his time in India. Right? And we see just from history that these men ended up doing exploits throughout the entire world and reaching the world for the gospel. And the evidence of that is that Christianity uh, has spread through the entire known world. And, um, and so what we see here is the very beginning of the church. And we just recently looked at Acts chapter 2. Okay? And what was going on at the very beginning of Acts chapter 2 is that the disciples were waiting on the promise of Jesus Christ. Jesus had told them, look, you need to go back to Jerusalem, you need to hang out, and you need to wait for my spirit to come. It's going to descend, and it's going to enter into your lives, and it will be a comfort to you, and it will give you unction to deliver the message of the gospel to the entire world. It'll give you the boldness to go and preach the message of repentance to everyone uh, from Jerusalem to the uttermost. And this has just taken place. And so the last time we were together uh, was the day of Pentecost. And we talked about the day of Pentecost. And we discovered the uniqueness of the day of Pentecost. You guys remember that? was two weeks ago now. And we pointed out that this is a very important day in the history of our faith. And the miracles that ensued were also very unique. And we investigated the qualities of the Spirit's coming. Okay? Nod your heads. It's good for a teacher. If you remember, like if you remember this, nod your head a little bit. It's good for a teacher. He knows he's heading in the right direction. Okay, but we talked about how the Spirit announced Himself, right? How He announced Himself, and then we talked about how the Spirit manifested Himself in the lives of the disciples. Now, a lot of really good questions arise from this chapter, don't they? Tough questions, questions about these miracles being performed, right? Questions about whether or not those gifts are extended perpetually, right? Whether they cease or not. Lots of questions arise, and so last week we addressed some of those questions particularly those about speaking in tongues. Remember that? Okay, now, I don't have time to go back and reteach that stuff. And so if you missed it, that's okay. Uh, Go online. The messages are there. We post them every week. And you can go back and you can listen to that message where we address uh, the questions surrounding speaking in tongues. Okay, now we'll, we'll address some more of that today a little bit. But this is where we left off, okay? A group of Galileans... Okay, the disciples, Galilean men, uh, which were not necessarily viewed as the most prestigious members of the Jewish society, okay, historically speaking, these men were gifted with a supernatural ability to speak the message of God in a diversity of Gentile languages. Right? Remember, we, we recognize that. In fact, the passage itself tells us 
all of these languages that were being spoken, right? Uh, starts in verse 9, and it goes down through uh, verse 11. All the different languages that were being spoken, these Gentile languages, they're being spoken in a Jewish um, setting, right? So they're in Jerusalem. It's the Feast uh, of, of Weeks, right? It's the day of Pentecost, and it's a Jewish celebration. And so all of the Jews from the surrounding region are there in Jerusalem, right, having a religious feast day. And suddenly, all of these kind of lowly Jewish individuals are speaking articulately in a diversity of Gentile languages. And so the question for the Jewish people who are standing around witnessing this is, what is happening here? Right? So for these Jews visiting Jerusalem on a Holy Week, this would have come as a great shock to them, offensive in almost every way. The, the Jews didn't, weren't a big fan of the Gentiles. If you read your Bible just a little bit, right, you, you realize that the Jews had ma- basically isolated themselves culturally and religious, uh, in religious terms from almost any other type of people group. And so this would have come as a great offense to them, and they would have said to themselves, what in the heck is going on? Well, Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. It's the birth of the church. These vile Gentile languages were declaring the message of God. And they would have come as a sign to these Jewish people that this is their last opportunity to get on board with the Messiah. Now, so I don't want to confuse you. The Messiah is Jesus. Okay, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, there have been prophecies throughout the entire Old Testament, uh, hundreds and hundreds, almost thousands of prophecies of Jesus Christ coming, the Messiah coming into this world and delivering the people. And so they knew to anticipate the Messiah, but when Jesus Christ came, they ended up crucifying him. They missed the boat. They missed their opportunity to receive God's gift to this world. Okay, and some of you know that story and and some of you may not. But right now, the Jews would have been, been given this very last opportunity And we'll see this kind of transition happening in the chapters to come. Their last opportunity to get on board with the Messiah. This is the the Jews' last chance to jump on a moving train. And we'll talk, we'll use this illustration again a little bit further on. This is the last opportunity for for them to accept this transitioning program of God. Does this make sense to everyone? Okay, this is like, some of the stuff I'm going to cover today is a little bit heady. Okay, we're talking D2 LFBI level stuff is going to come out in today's message. And I need the head nodding because it's going to tell me that even, that, that, that even if you're a visitor today, that you're getting it at some level. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do my best. Okay, so it's very important to God here to give the nation of Israel one more opportunity to receive the gospel message before he shifts his emphasis to the Gentiles. Okay. Now, Paul points this out. You guys know the Apostle Paul. He points this out in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He, he shows us that this is God's approach. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So he's saying the message of Jesus Christ is the power unto salvation for everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul's pointing out here that, look, this message was to come to the Jews first. Christ came into the world to reach the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And this is how the program is, is playing out. And we're seeing that happening here next. But, but as the Jewish crowd began to gather, men were both amazed, they were disgusted, they were doubtful of what they were witnessing happening until Peter speaks up. 
And so what we're going to look at is what Peter's response is. So today's message is the gospel declared in Jerusalem. That's what we're calling it. Because that gives us a little bit of a historical setting. It's not super inspirational. But we're going to get some inspiration out of this, okay? Let's start in verse 12, where, where we face the doubt and the accusations of the Jews. Promise me you won't get bored. I'm going to try to tell some stories and give some illustrations to make sure that you stay with me. I can pull you in here. All right? But this is a little heavy. So we ready? And they were all amazed, that these Jewish men that were standing around, these people that were there on this feast day, right? the people that were witnessing what was happening, these men speaking in these other languages, they were amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. The first thing we want to look at is this issue of drunkenness versus the Spirit's filling, okay? These men, these Jewish men, supposed that the disciples were drunk. Now, I talked about this a little bit. I mean, sometimes when I hear other languages being spoken, it, it sounds like drunkenness to me. I do not decipher really anything, even from the languages that I've studied. Spanish? Eh. I know the word hermano. Alvaro, you are my hermano. I know the word amigo. But that's mainly because the three amigos came out in my childhood. I remember that movie coming out when I was like four or something. Okay, I don't, but so when I'm hearing it being spoken fluently, I'm just like, yeah, that's cool. I don't know what they're talking about, right? And so for these Jews to hear all these different languages being spoken, they mistook it for drunkenness. The message of the gospel being spoken in a multitude of languages by unlearned men of low estate, perhaps it was reasonable to confuse all of those languages with the blithering of drunkenness, right? Maybe, maybe. But contrary to their accusations, the controlling of the Spirit is not to be confused with drunkenness. Now the only similarity between the two things, Spirit-filling and drunkenness, is that, that you're yielding yourself to either a spirit or spirits. There's a yielding that's taking place. You're giving up control. You're giving your faculties and your agency over to something else. That's the only similarity. In the case of the apostles, the agent is clearly not alcohol, okay? It is the spirit, and the spirit produces the exact opposite effect from drunkenness, the exact opposite effect. It creates a sober mind, a sober mind. You know, according to NHTSA, 10,497 people died in alcohol-impaired crashes in 2016. A lot of drinking and driving going on in the United States of America. 10,497 is a lot. Um, now, alcohol is incredibly dangerous uh, when, it, when you yield to it. It becomes very dangerous. It creates chaos and it creates destruction, right? We see that in this statistic. In every example of the filling of the Holy Spirit, it produces articulate and emotionally stable individuals ready to present the Scripture with authority. That's what we see. When someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, it produces the exact opposite thing. It produces uh, an articulate uh, way of speaking. It creates a, a sober mind. It creates, it creates an emotional stability where someone has, has an exact perspective for the given situation. This is why Paul, is, he so clearly addresses the distinction in Ephesians chapter 5, 
verse 18, and it says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Okay, now he's going to talk about what's the exact opposite thing of that. But be filled with the Spirit. Capital S, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, sent to mankind to indwell our hearts and to guide us in, in life in almost every situation, yielded to that Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The control of how alcohol produces stupidity, division, vulgarity, and the loss of faculty. Right? Many of us are familiar with that. We've had those experiences before. The Spirit's control produces sobriety, sincerity, and preaching, which is what we're about to see here happen in Jerusalem. So, so these Jewish men who are w- witnessing uh, this moment are mocking them for being drunk. So I, I want to take a moment here to, to talk about mocking men. Mocking men. And I don't want to start with a key point. Okay? Key point number one. When the Spirit is at work, when the Spirit is at work, the mockery of men is always nearby. Okay? When God is doing something in your life, nearby, lurking, in proximity, are going to be people that cast doubt on what God's doing. Okay? Now, sometimes these are acquaintances. Maybe these are just people that don't know you very well. It could be people in passing, life passing, you know, people at work or things like that. So they could be acquaintances, but sometimes they're friends. Sometimes they're family. And sometimes they're even co-laborers. Even if it's your brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes come to you with doubting words. But listen to me. You know God has never been afraid of, of mockery. He's never been afraid of it. He's never been afraid of the doubts of men. This doesn't cause God to cower, does it? Christ was mocked seven times in the Gospels between his trial and his death. Now, that word in, 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 our, in our English Bible is used seven times as it concerns the, the, the foolishness of the cross. He puts himself in this vulnerable situation where he's obeying specifically what God has called him to do. And in so doing, he finds himself being mocked repeatedly even by people that should be standing by him. Christ is uh, is used to men with doubtful hearts. He's used to that. Even his disciples uh, doubted after his resurrection. Matthew chapter 28 verse 16 says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. Some weren't sure. Is this actually the resurrected Christ? I mean, they could have been doubting a lot of things. They could have been doubting his message. Is what he's saying about the kingdom of God, is that really what we're supposed to be buying into? Whatever it was that they doubted, these were the 11 men. These are the ones that had spent three and a half years with him. These are the ones that were supposed to be close to him and ready to receive his word. And some of them were doubting. Jesus Christ himself was used to doubting men. And he was not afraid. God does not fear the wisdom of this world. God is not mocked. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 tells us that God is not going to be mocked. Yet so many Christians today are fearful of their cynics. 
We dread the mocking eyes of the lost that we encounter day to day, maybe in your workplace, maybe at school, maybe in your classes, maybe if you speak up and make your Christianity known in your philosophy class. I remember one time I was in philosophy class at UMKC, and I love philosophy. I mean, I still read philosophy a lot. I mean, it's, it's very intriguing to me, people asking big questions, right? I remember being in uh, my philosophy class at UMKC. Did great in that class, had good grades. Um, and, you know, it was, it was supposed to be an active class, right? So, like, a lot of times, the philosophy teacher, I really enjoyed him. I, hope, I think he's still probably at UMKC. I really enjoyed his class, and he would ask lots of questions uh, in, in, among the people. And you know the thing that he loved was when people just didn't know. Like, not that they didn't have an answer, but that they left the answers all open-ended because philosophy works the best when we don't have solutions, right? It keeps him in a job. And, and so uh, I remember one day, I don't even remember what the topic was, but he called on me, and I pointed out something that comes from a biblical perspective that seemed maybe a little bit absolute in nature, and I was ridiculed in the in, entire class in front of everyone, and he said, well, it's great to know that you have philosophy worked out, um, but I'm looking for people who are interested in, in learning. Yeah. But so many of us are afraid of like the mocking words of people who, who, who don't even know our Savior. They have no context for what we believe. We, they have no context for the power that resides inside of us. And so they mock. That's the natural thing to do. And somehow, along the way, we've responded in fear. We've responded in fear. We're scared to be judged, not just for our faith, but for all types of things. Our insecurity has eroded to the point where we fear almost everything. And some of you know in this room, you, you live life afraid. Afraid that if the outfit that you pick out isn't right, that someone's going to give you a hard time. Afraid of what the opposite sex thinks of you. Right? Afraid that you might speak wrong. Afraid that your intellect doesn't match up. You I mean, we could go on all day long. And we live in fear. And yet we worship a God who says, fear me and fear me alone. It's so sad. We are imprisoned at the potential of mockery. <laughs> Key point number two. When the spirit has power, the fear of man is banished. The fear of man is banished. So here we have the disciples. They're speaking in, in all these languages, and God is doing a mighty work in their lives. And they're preaching the gospel. And, and just naturally, we see the mocking words of these men, and we see doubt coming in their direction. And guess what? It does not keep them from speaking the truth because they're living in the power of the spirit of God. Now, some of you in this room may, may have no idea what that means. You, you may have never experienced that. You may have no idea what it means to be empowered by the Spirit of God. But let me just explain something to you. For the believer, for the one who's called on Jesus Christ as their Savior, that has the Spirit of God indwelling them, it's so weird, it's so weird that when I'm full of God's Word and I'm uh, 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 prepared to respond in a yielded manner to my Savior, He gives me boldness in situations that I would not otherwise have. In other words, he's changed my life. I'll tell you this. When I was in high school, before I really began pursuing God, I was a complete introvert. And some of you could never even imagine me that way. Right? 
I was a complete introvert. I didn't like being around people. I never wanted to speak up. Right? The idea of my 16-year-old version of me, if he could see what's going on right now in this moment, he would wet himself for fear. Okay? It would be, it would be so, like, concerning. Right? But God did this in my life. And he creates boldness where there, where there doesn't seem to be any. He creates security when your life seems so insecure. He creates peace in a life that seems completely out of rest. He does that. And so for the person that is empowered by the Spirit of God, there, it's, it's almost impossible to enter in to fear. It's completely banished. What power does Satan have in the household of God? When we are content with the Spirit's power, it's really hard to be intimidated by mortal men, isn't it? By mere mortals? <laughs> right? It's very hard to be intimidated by a person who's just made of dirt just like you. Listen to what Paul says uh, about when he went and visited the church in Corinth. He's, he's writing in 1 Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians and he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything thing among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He's just pointing out his flaws. I was with you in all of that weakness and and I was full of fear. But listen, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was Paul's testimony. When he should have been fearful and and weak and, and in bondage, to trembling. He was given the power of God to speak truth, not with enticing words, because he wasn't trying to please anyone. He wasn't trying to sound smart, thank God, because if I got up here every week trying to sound smart, I would be in big trouble. Okay? I'd be in big trouble. So listen, Peter, full of power in this moment, stands up against the accusations and the doubts of others and responds. Now we're going to look at his response. Can we do that? Verse 14. We have to get to 41. Can you believe it? (laughs) Ah, Okay. So Peter, first of all, we're given, Peter presents us with a very logical response. And logic is good. Did you know that the Bible is actually a very logical book? It's very, very logical. It's very linear in the way that it presents things, but it's also circular in the way it presents things so that people of different types of mindsets in different places in the world can understand its truths. It's amazing. Yeah? Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Okay, now listen, this is what that means. Hey guys, it's 9 a.m., no one's drunk. (laughs) That's what that means. Now if you know someone that's getting drunk at 9 a.m., there's a serious problem, right? There's a serious, serious problem. And what he's saying is like, guys, it's 9 a.m. on a feast day. These men, these Galilean men, they're not drunk. Okay? The logic continues. He presents them with a biblical defense. Now, this is where things are going to get a little heady for a second, so I need you to stay with me, okay? And again, I need those head nods because that's going to help me, all right? 
Peter now addresses the biblical prophecies that point to the moment that was coming to pass right here. Okay? So he's going to use the Bible. He's going to use prophecy from the Old Testament to support the coming of the Spirit and the speaking of the tongues that's taking place right in front of them. All right? Now listen. Let's read it. Verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Okay? There's a book in the Old Testament. It's a very small, minor prophet uh, uh, book called Joel. And this is what Joel says. And Peter quotes it. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath uh, uh, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. It's getting weird here, okay? Uh, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Okay. So what we know, what, this is what we know. So here's the deal. We are New Testament Christians. Okay, let's think real big for a second. And we have a completed word of God. Did the, did the Jews... And, and the apostles have a completed word of God when they were speaking these words? No, we, we have the benefit of having a completed Bible, okay? We have everything that God wants us to know. We have it, you know? And it gives us a great benefit. We have the ability, because we have a completed word, to go back and look on this experience in retrospect with particularly fresh eyes and a better understanding than even these men had in the moment when, when it was going on. Does that make sense? So, so that's a beautiful thing. We have the honor of being able to look at the day of Pentecost retrospectively. We can analyze it and understand it in light of where we are at today in the church age. And then, this is the part where I need the, yes. Okay. Now listen to me. I'm going to explain something to you. That, remember, we've talked about how Acts is a transitional book, right? There's a lot of things that are happening that seem kind of up in the air. And this is about God trying to pursue the Jews one more time before he goes and he emphasizes the Gentile people, which are those people that aren't Jewish, okay? So there are a few prophetic and historical conclusions to be drawn between what we are seeing in Acts and its connection to Joel. Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's use logic, all right? Can we do that? We like logic. The prophecy of Joel, first of all, point one. Okay, there we go. The prophecy of Joel points to the day of Pentecost and these men receiving the Spirit. Can we agree with that? When we read it, we hear Joel saying that God's going to pour out his Spirit on humanity, okay, on, on, on his followers, on all these people, and that God was going to use them, that they were, gonna, they were going to uh, uh, have visions. And, and so that, this is what's happening here. That they're prophesying in the power and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see that happening here, right? The prophecy of Joel, point two, the prophecy of Joel declares an end time setting, doesn't it? We see that too, don't we? Yeah, with the whole, the darkness and, and, the, and the blood and the smoke and all that business, right? It reads a lot like what we see happening in Revelation during the tribulation, don't we? In the second half of the tribulation, tribulation, in that time of wrath, this looks a lot like that. So we see from Joel that he's declaring an end time setting just before the judgment of Christ comes on the earth. I told you this was going to be heady. Like, oh my gosh, what is he talking about? Okay, hang with me. 
Now, that stuff about the end times, we don't really see that happen in Acts, do we? We don't, that doesn't, that's not really the whole blood business. That's a, I don't see that anywhere, right? And I, and I don't see the thing about the darkness. I don't see that. Okay, but listen, here's the third point. It's fair to conclude that if the Jews would have received the Messiah in a national repentance, then the return of Christ would have become imminent in favor of a Jewish-centered messianic program. I told you I'd lose you right there. That's it. Okay, so listen to me. This is, this is what I mean by that, is that this transitional moment here, Christ has chosen, God has chosen to continue to emphasize a, a gospel message to the Jewish people with the hopes that they're going to get on board. He wants to give them every opportunity to receive this message. And if the Jews would have chosen as a, as a nation of people, if the nation of Israel would have said, we are in, we repent, we're turning away, we messed up, we crucified the Savior, and now we're on board, then perhaps the second part of this, this Joel prophecy would have come to light, would have come to bear. And Acts would have maybe read completely different. And in fact, we probably wouldn't have a lot of the Pauline epistles, at, maybe at all. Right? We, we don't know that, right? That's, that's hearsay. But my point is, is that they didn't, they didn't receive the Messiah for, for the next point. And this is part of my logic here. Because this doesn't happen, the prophecy of Joel, this end time scenario that we see Peter quoting here, is suspended in favor of a Gentile program. See, this is, this is the privilege of having our New Testament. We can look back and we see, oh, wow, this is weird. We don't have to take this passage out of context and say, oh, because this is what a lot of people do. Bear with me. Theologically, a lot of people read this, and they say to themselves, well, this has to be applying still. This, this passage of Joel, this has to be coming to pass. We must be living in the tribulation. And guess what? There are some Christians today that say we've been living in the tribulation for the last 2,000 years. Okay, and they're just misreading, they're misapplying what's happening here. Can I give you an example to make this simpler? You're like, please, God, yes. Help me. Okay, let, let me explain this. So we've talked about how Acts is a book of transition. Okay, now well, imagine for a moment that the program of God is a train. It's a train. You guys like trains? I love trains. My brother was a graffiti artist. That's shameful, I'm not, that's not a good thing. But, but he had toy trains that he would like, he just had toy trains everywhere. And uh, James Fife used to live near train tracks. And we would actually go hop on train. Okay, see, these, I'm not like telling you that any of this is good, but we would hop trains, right? Sometimes they were moving. Not good. Not good. Don't do that. You might die. Okay. Well, I like trains. I just always, I've just always enjoyed trains. Um, but so this program of God is kind of like a train. After the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, the Jewish people have, had established that they were not on board the Jesus train. Are you with me? They weren't getting on that train. And so the Jesus train is pulling out of the station, and that program is heading in a different direction. They're leaving from the Jerusalem station, and they're moving, praise God, at a slow pace because God's intention right here in chapter 2 is that they kind of, wait a second, it's going slow enough where I can jump on board. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the train began to pull out of Jerusalem, but at a slow pace so that the Jews still have an opportunity to jump on board. See, Peter is presenting his message to the Jews with the hope of a national salvation still being possible. 
okay, that the message of Joel could be imminent, that the end could come, that soon Jesus might return, and that God would, just like he promised in the old, the old promises of the Old Testament, that God wants to use the Jewish people and the message of the Messiah to reach the Gentile nations. No one says that that wasn't going to happen. He was just going to do it within the Jewish program. Yeah? Okay, makes sense. Good. Some of you, if it doesn't make sense, guess what? D2 comes after discipleship. Now listen to me. So Peter's presenting this message. Now, but what we learn here as we move through the rest of Acts is that the train is beginning to pick up speed. It picks up the pace. As the nation of Israel continually establishes itself as primarily anti-Jesus, the train sets out on a course that is new. And so this is what happens. The Jewish program is temporarily bypassed, and the Gentile program picks up steam. The tracks shift. You ever seen that? You guys followed? Have you ever seen a movie with trains in it? You know how the tracks can shift? Okay. They call that a turnout. They call that a turnout. When a train is headed down a track, okay, and that train, they hit that, that lever. In the old movies, it's like this big lever. There's a guy out there covered in soot, and he pulls a lever, and the, sh- and the train shifts to a new track. Okay, they call that a turnout. And what happens here is that the program, the Jewish program, hits a turnout, and it goes down a Gentile track with the intent that a, a turnout at some point in time when Jesus Christ returns for his church, the turnout will go back into a Jewish track. Okay? And then the prophecy of Joel becomes relevant once again. Raise your hand if you understand that. Okay. If you don't, come and talk to me. Because I want that to be very clear because it affects the way we see the rest of this passage and the rest of Acts. And so listen, the tracks shift with the intent that they'll go back into the Jewish program. At the, mo- uh, the moment of the tribulation, and, and, and as we enter into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we'll see that track shift back in. Okay, but listen to me. These Jews don't know any of that, right? The, the, the apostles don't know any of that. They don't know what's coming. God's at work, and the transition is taking place. Who knows that when you're in the midst of a transition, you don't always know where you're going? Yeah, transitions are hard. Sometimes you're just like, whoa, wait, what? Okay, I can only lean into God. And he'll take me where I need to go. And that's what the apostles are doing. So, so what is it that the Jews actually heard here? We should ask ourselves that because we want to put ourselves back in this historical context. Right? What is it that the Jews actually heard here? These men that heard Peter's message and this, this message from Joel being preached, he presents it and the Jews would have heard that Jesus Christ, the Messiah's return, was imminent. And he will be coming to judge the earth. That's what they heard. And if we don't get on board, then we will, reject, we will be rejecting God and his will. That's what they heard. And so their ears were perked. They weren't thinking about these men being drunk anymore. Well, suddenly Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, presents Joel, and their ears perk up, and they're ready to listen. Oh, my goodness. They're talking about the fact that we miss the Messiah. And that, that he's coming again to judge the earth. And if we don't get on board, we, we're going to miss out. And so their ears are perked. And now they're ready for the gospel message. And I don't have time to teach it. Okay? But then this next part is so good, guys. No, we'll, we'll be here till one. We can't do that, okay? Let's, let's end here, but I want to end here on a very important note. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of getting on board with Christ. 
You know, there's a lot of us, just in a very inspirational way, the gospel has been presented to us. And there's many of us who've, who've heard the word of God preached. And yet we have not jumped on that train. We still have maybe some doubts or some questions. But here's the deal. If you recognize that there's something unique about Jesus Christ, if you see him as divine, if you see that he is the son of God, then that's a train that you don't want to miss. Because he absolutely came into this world to save you from your sins. He absolutely loves you. He absolutely died with your name on his mind. And you don't want to miss the opportunity in this life because you only have but a little bit of time in this world to receive Jesus Christ. Life is but a vapor and then it's gone and the train is passed and you've missed it. It's your responsibility as a free will individual to decide that Jesus Christ is the savior of this world and that he is unique above all other gods. The gods of your career, the gods of other religions, he is greater than those things and that's the train you need to get on. And if that's you today, then you need to come forward during the invitation and you need to meet with someone so they can present to you clearly what it means to be saved. There's others of you in this room that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and and you've been following him passively. You're not empowered by the Spirit. You're not living in his will. You're like a hobo. I've been accused of looking like a hobo. Even today, actually. Okay? And you've been riding the train, but but you know about a hobo is that hobos get off the train and they get back on wherever they want, whenever it's convenient for them. And so here's the deal. If you're in God's will and you're living in his power, that's not an option for you. See, the power and the security is being on the train and going the direction that God is going. And you don't get to to just jump off and do whatever you want willy-nilly. You belong to him. And you don't get to act in any other way. The cares of the world are coming at us from all different directions. The mocking words of men, the doubt of other people. And those aren't opportunities for you to jump off. Those are opportunities for you to press in. And if you know that you've been struggling with following the world, especially as the new semester has come upon us and we're facing new temptations, some of us, It's time to reconsecrate our hearts. And I want you to do that. So whether you, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ and you need to get on that train, or maybe you do know and you've been treating your relationship with God as optional, you need to come forward today. uh, This is our invitation time so the worship team can come up. And I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we thank you so much for the truth of your scripture. We thank you for a completed word so that we can look back and see with great analysis, what it is that you're doing. And we can compare scripture with scripture. What a great privilege, and we're thankful for that. God, I pray for the souls of the people in this room. I pray that your spirit would convict us at whatever point we need conviction, at whatever area of our life that's being pricked, and and whatever aspect of our lives that that you're calling us to a deeper faith. God, I, I ask that you would help us. You would help us to say yes to you. You would help us to live in your will. We desire you above all things. Make your name known in our mouth, in our lives, and in the lives of those we come in contact with every day. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.